A reading from the Gospel of Matthew. For it is as if a man, going on a journey, summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master replied, You wicked and lazy slave, you knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought, to, you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with the ten talents. For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave... Throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It is a delight to be able to worship with you today. Um, I'm so grateful to Katie and to Ray, to Meg for the invitation. Um, it's so good to get to know other Baptists uh, who are right here. We're all in the same area together. I want to confess to you right off the bat, though, that I didn't know what I was thinking when I told Meg that I would preach the gospel lectionary reading for this week. I don't know if I just thought that that's what I should preach, because that's most often what's preached in churches, so it might be more consistent with what you've been doing over the past few weeks. Or maybe I just didn't read the passage well enough before I said, sure, that's what I'll do. But I can't tell you how many times this week I've said to my husband, 
who is wisely preaching a different passage at our church this morning, (laughs) that I should entitle my sermon, The Terrible Parable. Because this story that Jesus tells is a bit of a doozy. Aside from the issue that the Jesus figure is a slave master, which in and of itself should be jarring to our modern ears, You know, this parable, it kind of strums along at the beginning like any good little Sunday school lesson until, bam, we get to the end. And all of a sudden, the Jesus figure comes across as a complete scoundrel. When a slave, who the master doesn't even think has very much ability to begin with, when he fails to rise up beyond his potential, the master becomes furious The slave confesses that he's afraid of the master because he's a money grubber. The landowner punishes the slave by casting him into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is strange because Jesus doesn't make a habit of portraying himself as a miscreant in his stories. Why does that happen here? Now, before moving to Northern Virginia, my family lived in Baltimore for nearly a decade. If you've ever been there, you may know that there is this really large, rather hideous statue outside of Baltimore's Penn Station. It's just a person standing with their arms out like this. But this statue is right at a place where the highway curves around it. And as you drive along the highway and you look at the statue, it becomes apparent that at some angles, this statue looks like a man, and at other angles, it appears to be a woman. Now, the name of the statue is man-woman, so apparently it was either like a fortuitous mistake or something that the artist intended to do. But I think that if we look at this troublesome parable from several different angles, like that statue, we might see that there's a little more there than beats the eye. Now, I have not been able to come up with a way to make the parable of the talents like a nice little package wrapped up neatly with a bow on it. It's messy. But I do think that we can find some interesting questions in it. And while answers make us more comfortable, Sometimes questions can actually lead us to a deeper sort of knowing. So Jesus tells this story at the end of his ministry. Before heading to Jerusalem, Jesus tells several parables in Matthew's gospel that are designed to prepare his followers for that time in between his absence, the time after he leaves, and then to offer them some guidance as to how they should live during that in-between time, the time after Jesus leaves and before his final return. Like I mentioned, the story is about a man who is a landowner and a slave master. In preparing to leave his estate for a long, unspecified amount of time, he entrusts each of his three slaves with some money while he's away. Well, in Luke's telling of the gospel, we could say he leaves them with some money. 
And Matthew's telling, he leaves each of them with an absurd amount of money. So respectively, he gives the slaves five talents, two talents, and one talent. Now, numerous commentaries say that a talent probably equaled a little over a million dollars in Jesus's day. So even the slave that got the smallest amount was entrusted with an exorbitant amount of money. After the master leaves, the first two slaves, the one who gets five talents and the one who gets two, they each go into the marketplace, the center of town, and they work the system by investing and trading and bartering until each of them doubles their money. The third slave plays it safe, though. Like my stepmother's Depression-era parents, the third slave doesn't even trust the bank. He buries the money so that only he knows where it is. He's not going to take a gamble at all. He may not make any money, but the third slave most certainly is not going to lose a dime of what the slave master entrusted to him. When the master returns, he gathers the slaves in order to settle accounts. When each of the slaves who made a profit gives their master their earnings, he praises them, telling them that since they have been trustworthy with what he gave them, he is going to give them more and more responsibility. He'll put them in charge of greater things. And he invites each of them to enter into his joy. The third slave steps forward and hands the master the exact same talent that was originally given to him. By now, he knows the master isn't going to be happy with him. So he explains why he chose to bury the talent. He confesses, Master, you are a harsh man. You profit when other people do the work. You're growing rich off the backs of others. I was afraid. That's why I dug a hole and hid the talent in the ground. Here it is. You may have it. The master becomes furious. He calls the poor slave a pathetic excuse for a servant, and he chides him for squandering his generosity. Instead of inviting the slave to enter into his joy, the master shuns him to the darkness that's filled with mourning and with deep fear. That's a rather harsh punishment, isn't it? The third slave is not like he's the prodigal son that runs off and squanders the master's money. He just fails to make a profit on it. Many people preach this parable in a way that tells us that it's about how followers of Jesus use our talents 
not just our money, but our giftedness in order to further God's kingdom until Jesus' return. We should use what we have in order to spread the good news of Jesus' love. And if we do this, we will be entrusted with more opportunity and more responsibility. When we use our giftedness to co-labor with God, we do enter into God's joy. And this interpretation makes perfect sense to us. Participating with God to create more love and justice in the world does bring about joy, and it certainly would be a shame for those of us who follow the ways of Jesus to hold back, allowing fear to prevent us from creating love and justice in the world. And thematically, this interpretation fits right in with the parables that surround it in Matthew's gospel. It also fits with Matthew's fascination with a final judgment. He writes about it more than any of the other gospel writers. However, this telling of the story still leaves us wondering about the ruthlessness of the master. Why does he come across as being so cruel? This has caused some to wonder, what if the master isn't actually a harsh person? What if the third slave mistakenly perceives him to be a scoundrel? Our perceptions of people impact the way that we behave around them and how we interpret their words and their actions, right? You know, if we believe somebody doesn't like us, then we might interpret their busyness as them trying to avoid us. And, you know, and if they're not the kind of people that use emojis in their text messages, we might interpret what they write, their jokes maybe, as being insults to us. We naturally avoid people who are unkind, and we oftentimes project onto them what we've imagined them to be, whether or not that's who they really are. So how does our understanding of God shape how we approach God in our day-to-day actions? If we believe God to be an angry judge, then we will likely live in fear of making mistakes and believe that everything that bad happens to us is some sort of divine judgment. If we think of God as being more distant and aloof, disengaged from us, we may interpret our hardships as an absence of God's presence. See, God's not really there, I told you. However, if we see God as ultimately being gracious and forgiving, we'll be willing to take risks whenever we sense the Spirit prompting us to do so. We'll enter into that risk knowing that we don't do so alone and trusting that God can make good things happen even when we fail. Could it be that the third slave perceives the master to be a tyrant who would lash out if the slave lost any of the money entrusted to him? And so that becomes his experience. 
when he fails to turn a profit? Could he create his own reality? Is it possible that just a part of what Jesus is saying in this story is I'm about to leave you. And sometimes it's hard to remember who people really are when they've been gone for a while. Do your best to remember who I am. Remember all of those times that I've told you to not be afraid. There's a lot of important work for you to do. And it's going to be nearly impossible for you to accomplish it if you're afraid. Especially if you're afraid of me. Now this interpretation responds to the master being so cruel, but it still has some holes in it. But there's yet another interpretation of the parable of the talents. And like the others, this one does not leave us with a neat little package with a bow on it. But I still find this interpretation intriguing, even though in some ways it's more problematic than the others. Imagine for a moment, what if Jesus isn't the master in the parable at all? What if Jesus is actually the third slave? Now stick with me as we unwrap this one. So at this point in history, Jewish people were being dominated by the Roman Empire. Working the system in order to accumulate more, whether it's more power, more land, more money, that's what the empire is all about. We know this to be true because the ways of the empire still rule the world today. Perhaps the most troubling words that come out of the master's lips in this story are these. For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Wow, those words sound a lot like the master approves of the systems in which the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. These words make the master and the story sound like tyrant rulers from today, and they don't at all sound like the Jesus who preached the Beatitudes, which are also in Matthew's gospel. Remember that when Jesus tells this story, he is on his way to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, Jesus will refuse to bow down to the empire or play its games. And he will be tortured and murdered for refusing to play by the empire's rules. In fact, he'll be buried in a tomb. For three days, Jesus will be enclosed in earth, which is slightly reminiscent of a servant digging a hole to bury a talent something which is precious under the ground. Perhaps a part of what's happening here is that Jesus is warning his followers that there are consequences for defying the empire. 
But that's exactly what one must do in order to follow Jesus. Now, each of these interpretations brings with it both some meaningful insights, some holes that can't be answered, and some deep questions about the parable. But there is a theme that seems to run between all three of them. And that is that digging holes can be dangerous. Being too afraid to be willing to take some risks for the sake of the kingdom of God leaves God's hopes for the world incomplete. Being afraid to use our talents eats away at our souls. If we envision God to be a ruthless scoundrel master, that fear will consume us. It is impossible to live into the freedom of being God's beloved child when we believe God to be one incapable of loving us. The empire thrives today, and it has certain expectations and even demands of us. Now, these demands are in direct opposition to the ways of Jesus, the Jesus who proclaims that the ones who are blessed are the ones who are poor, those who are brokenhearted, the ones who are gentle and merciful, everyone who has a pure heart and those who work for peace. If we turn our backs on the ways of empire and choose the ways of Jesus, the Jesus who preaches the Beatitudes will transform us into the kind of people who are blessed. And the very end of the Beatitudes tells us that some who are blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Choosing the ways of Jesus will mean that we will be digging a hole, not to hide a talent, but it may end up being a hole in which the empire will want to bury us. It's dangerous work. But it's also what enables us to enter into God's joy. So fear not. Take the risk. Enter in to God's abiding joy. Amen.